there's a reason we sang the song we sang, Ancient Words, and I don't know uh, if, if you kind of paid attention, but you, you made a commitment if, if you sang it boldly before the Lord. You said, um, you sang. Ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. Here's the prayer part. We have come with open hearts. Let the ancient words impart. There's a reason uh, we gather like this, and there's a reason that we gather around the Word of God. I just uh, got a new Bible last week, and I, as I do with new Bibles, I, I pasted in the front a reminder for myself uh, what my task is before you, a large portion of my task. And this is from 2 Timothy 4.2, and it's from the Amplified Version, uh, which is uh, basically taking... The, the text of scripture and, and making sure you get every nuance of the word, but listen to what Second Timothy 4.2 says. And I take this as a charge, as do my fellow elders here. Preach the word as an official messenger. Be ready when the time is right and even when it's not. Keep your sense of urgency, whether the opportunity seems favorable or unfavorable, whether convenient or inconvenient, whether welcome or unwelcome. Correct those who err in doctrine or behavior Warn those who sin, exhort and encourage those who are growing towards spiritual maturity with inexhaustible patience and faithful teaching. It's my task before you, your fellow elders, uh, take this task seriously. So as we turn to God's word this morning, um, I trust that, that it is your prayer that God would speak. So Genesis chapter 33 is where we are in the Bible this morning. Genesis chapter 33. Let's look at that together. I'll read it. I'm not sure where that is in the church Bible. Um, I'll leave you to figure that out. Genesis chapter 33. Very beginning. All right. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the, ch and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children. 
until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. This is God's word. Let's uh, pray now and ask the Lord for help. Father, this word that lies open before us, as we, we quoted together earlier, it's living and active. And Father, we pray. We pray that you would plant this living and active word on our minds and our hearts and bring about in us what you have determined to do. Accomplish your will in our lives. Father, it's not lost on anyone here that a mere man is standing up here doing this. And, and Lord, we all know that a mere man cannot accomplish the things of God, yet your word is the living and active part. And so I pray, Father, that through my lips, through my ruminations in the past week, and through all of us attending to you, what your spirit is going to accomplish today, that we will hear from you, that we will hear from you. So may it be so, Father, so that Christ himself is glorified among us. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, some here, no doubt, uh, maybe many, uh, you live a long way from extended family. The military or other careers have, have moved you uh, or your loved ones away from you, and you're separated from, from parents or, or children or grandchildren. And I'm sure that you long for the opportunity to gather again. You know, from our own experience, from Kathy and I, uh, the pandemic has made it difficult for us to see our families. But what if, what if there was strife in your family? Now, I hope that's not the case, but what if? And now you might be tempted in your distance to stay away, you know, just let sleeping dogs lie, as it were, rather than open the wound again. But I think it's true. Someday you're going to have to work it out. And while the elephant might not be in the room anymore, whether that is caused by you or the others, he was invited in and he's done serious damage to the furniture. And at some point in time, you got to deal with it. Well, before Jacob was born, the Lord had determined that he would be the son through whom the promise to Abraham would find fulfillment. Jacob, not Esau. But the early narrative, as we've gone through Genesis, it depicts someone in Jacob who is anything but the kind of man that would be the namesake of the people of God, the people set apart to God. His behavior seems to be, this is not very much in keeping with someone whom the Lord would set apart. Of course, if you've been tracking with us and if you've read through the earlier part of Genesis, Jacob was this opportunist. He had swindled Esau out of his birthright. He later stole the blessing from his father, Isaac, Isaac had intended it to give it to Esau. And the last time Jacob saw Esau, 
was 20 years earlier. He was told by his mother, Rebecca, that Esau wanted to kill him for how he had uh, stolen the blessing from his father. Now here is Jacob. He's about to return to the land that the Lord had promised him. He's getting ready to face the elephant, the consequences of his biggest moral weakness. And as we move through this text, we're going to see something, I think, as we are those who are on the way to possessing our eternal promises, we're going to see some things in Jacob, I believe, that would be instructive. And I, I've chosen three headings uh, just to kind of think through unpacking this text. And they are these. Uh, first one is divide and surrender. The second heading, blessing acknowledged. And third, promise fulfilled. Divide and surrender, blessing acknowledged, and promise fulfilled. That's, that's how we'll organize our, our way through this passage this morning. First, divide and surrender. Now, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the common strategy for, for gaining victory over an opponent. Uh, you want to exploit divisions in your enemy. Divide and conquer, right? So if your, your enemy is occupied with infighting, right, they can't really wage a, a unified assault against you. That's true, I believe, in war. And, and we certainly can observe this in the political realm, right? Now, what's Jacob going to do? He feels rightly threatened. He had not forgotten what he did to Esau 20 years earlier. And what does he want from Esau? Does he want to conquer him? Or is something else going on in his mind? No, he wants restored fellowship. That's where his heart is. And what's his strategy? What's Jacob's strategy? It's to divide and surrender. I'll show you what I mean in a moment. Now, Jacob first heard that Esau was coming with 400 men. Now, somebody who's seeking peace, somebody who's seeking fellowship, doesn't come with 400 men. And so rightly, Jacob was very fearful. There's no indication from, from the report back from e, uh, Jacob's servants about encountering Esau that his intentions were peaceful. He had no indication. So what did Jacob do? He divided his family into two camps. He reasoned that if, that if Esau was, uh, uh, had attacked one, at least the other camp might escape. Then after praying to the Lord for protection, Jacob took from his own herds, his great wealth, uh, a present that he set apart for Esau, some 580 animals. And we see that in the previous chapter. And he instructed his servants, divide, divide the herds into, and flocks into, into several droves and go and bring them to Esau. His intention was that he would then follow in the hope that his gift would, would appease Esau. And we can see that in Genesis chapter 32, 17, and 18. Now here we are in chapter 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Now it's time for Jacob to execute the plan. We're told he divided up the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants, that's, um, that's Bilhah and Zilpah. If you recall from the previous chapters, he bore children by his wives' maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. So he put them in the front. Then he put Leah and her children. Then he put Rachel and Joseph at the end. And then Jacob went on before them. Verse 3, Jacob approaching Esau before his, his children and wives 
bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. After Esau saw that gift, the first one to approach was Jacob, and this is important. And he approached Esau bowing seven times. And that's, that's making his, his body parallel to the ground, doing that seven times, taking several steps, doing that again seven times. Effectively, what it was communicating is, here's the gift. I'm making restitution. I've divided from my herds this massive gift for you. And I'm showing you I am humbled and surrendered before you. The, the number seven indicating a sense of completeness. I'm completely bowed before you. I'm at your mercy. Esau's response is clearly not what Jacob expected. <laughs> we see verse four, that the tension that is, has been building now finally is released. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept together. Fear gave way to fellowship. Anger was replaced by forgiveness. Now, how this change happened in Esau, when it happened, we don't know. Again, if he set out for, with 400 men, we're assuming he had on his mind conquering. But somewhere along the way, the Lord gripped his heart. His heart was changed. And he saw Jacob's humility. Now, we might speculate, I suppose, that, that the night that God visited Jacob and gave him the blessing that he requested, that was ultimately fulfilled in, in changing Esau's attitude again. Speculation. Verse 32, 30. When Jacob wrestled with the Lord, Jacob saw, he, he declared about the situation. He saw God face to face and lived. And now, having experienced that grace of God, the grace of God, not to kill him having encountered the living God. He says to Esau in verse 10, I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God and you've accepted me. He says to Esau, you have showed me the mercy of God. Now understand, just as we kind of drill down into what's going on with Jacob, before there would be any resolution with Esau, Jacob needed a change of heart before the Lord. And then the Lord took care of Esau. So as we think about application in our own lives, to, to restore fellowship with those we sin against not only requires an admission of guilt, right? I have wronged you but an effort, if at all possible, to reverse the effect of the offense. That's the restitution. To reverse the effect of the offense. And this was later codified in the law. You can read in Numbers 5, 6 through 8. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, sinning against the Lord, right? And that person re realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. You see, he sinned against the Lord, but the in, in, implication is here, you've sinned against your fellow man. You stole something, you give it back and add a fifth. It's restitution. Admitting guilt and, and making it right. 
So as a representative of the people of God, Jacob needed to right the wrongs he had done against his brother. Now again, if we think of application as Christians, it is required of us that we not only own up to our sins against others, but we make restitution where possible. So if you have stolen from someone, you don't simply say, oh, I'm sorry, and keep what you took. No, you return it, right? If you've committed a crime, you submit to justice. If you've slandered someone, you correct the record. If you've betrayed a trust, well, like adultery, of course, you can't undo the sin, but you can submit to accountability with that person in order to rebuild trust. You see, making restitution doesn't eliminate the sin, but what it does, it, it gives an honest recognition of the damage that it causes, and it provides a foundation for restored fellowship. Now, Jacob sinned against the Lord ultimately in the matter of defrauding his brother Esau and lying to his father. But we get it. There's no way he could repay the Lord. And as we think about our own lives, this is true for us as well. The thing that we must do to restore fellowship with our fellow man is divide and surrender, by which I mean restitution and humility. And also, to have fellowship with God, surrender is essential. Unless you acknowledge who God is, unless you acknowledge him in his supreme authority of all, all, all things, including your own life, unless you acknowledge that, you're living a lie. But understand, there's no possible way to make restitution to God for the offense of our sin. But God has provided for that as well. This is the beauty of what he has done. We can't make restitution, but God makes restitution on our behalf through Jesus the Son. If you've put your trust in Christ, he, the Son of God, made restitution. More precisely, he has made a just satisfaction for God's righteous anger. In John's first letter, as we flip to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit assures us of this. Listen to these words. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not only for ours, not for ours only, but also for the, whole, for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation. He is that wrath-absorbing sacrifice. God's wrath rightly would meet us for our sin and our rebellion. But Jesus steps into the way and takes it all upon himself, thus fully, fully and completely satisfying God's just requirements. Now, given how, how glorious that provision is, we must respond. We should respond. I hope your heart is moved to respond, to give up your whole self to God. Not as an act of restitution, but really as an expression of worship. This is what the Apostle Paul instructs. After, after unpacking a glorious 
explanation of the gospel of Jesus and what was accomplished at the cross through 11 chapters in the book of Romans. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Well, that's 11 chapters. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Understand, that's the reason why, why Jesus described discipleship as this all-in proposition. When he told his disciples, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denying self, that's a kind of a dividing, a, a removing of allegiance to self and self-indulgence and surrendering to Christ by following him without question. Not making restitution, that's been done in Christ, but responding with joyful, joyfully laying down ourselves in light of the fact that Christ laid down everything for us. Jacob's attitude towards the Lord played out in his relationship with Esau and restored fellowship. Serves as an example for us this morning. Well, second, second, we want to talk about blessing acknowledged. The blessing acknowledged. I, uh, I used to teach uh, a class at Grace University. It's now uh, no longer, but uh, as one of the adjuncts there, uh, something happened in my, in my last year that, that absolutely shocked me uh, regarding my class. I, I uh, received identical research papers from two of my students. Identical. Uh, what shocked me not, was not the fact that, that a desperate student would resort to plagiarism. That's, that's pretty common. But that it was done so blatantly. And I spoke to both students separately and I discovered that one student simply found the paper on his roommate's computer, changed the title page, and submitted it as his own. Again, that's, that was shocking because the only way that that student could think that this was a, a useful, albeit evil strategy for gaining a passing grade in the class, he would have had to assume that number one, I didn't read the papers at all, <laughs> or number two, that I have absolutely no memory that I would read something and completely forget everything that I'd read. It was amusing in one sense, but also tragic because I really had no choice but to give the, the cheating student a, a failing grade and report it to the academic dean. And we get it. In, in academic writing, in fact, any kind of writing, it's so important to properly cite your sources, right, for, for original ideas and, and specific quotes. It is both dishonest and highly offensive to steal work from one who'd, who'd made the original work. Now, how does that apply here? Why is this an illustration? Jacob is, his name means one who grasps the heel. He was born a schemer. 20 years working for Laban. He battled, <laughs> in effect, for scheming supremacy. But in the end, Jacob was humbled. He was given a blessing from the Lord. And ultimately, I believe that opened his eyes to all of the ways that the Lord had been good to him. His success wasn't his own hand. His success wasn't his own scheming. He understood that whatever he had achieved 
It is because the Lord had simply opened the floodgates of heaven and poured out that blessing upon him. And we see his change of attitude in the previous chapter. I'll remind you what it says there. He said this in his prayer to the Lord. I am not worthy. Genesis 32, 10. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. That was his part of his prayer. I'm not worthy of all this. You have, you have been uh, steadfastly faithful and loving to me. You have been faithful to me. After that, after that, he saw the face of God and lived. And here he is now, face to face with his brother Esau. And Jacob now testifies to what he now understands. Verse five, Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children. He said, who are these with you? Now, I think it's instructive or at least revealing what, what, how Jacob responds. He doesn't posture before Esau. He doesn't say, done pretty well for myself. No. He says, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. This, this family, this is God's gift. And, and when Esau refused that present that Jacob had given to him, really, I believe, as a restitution, but it was an appeasement to be sure, but as a restitution, I, I think it's partly in recognition that he had stolen that blessing from his brother, but he was also testifying to the, the true source of his wealth. Verse 11, please accept my blessing. My blessing. Interesting choice of word. He had stolen the blessing. Please accept. This is actually yours. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Why? Because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. God has dealt graciously. Just park there. God has dealt graciously. Jacob wanted Esau to know where his confidence was going forward. God has dealt graciously. Now, verses 12 through 14 describes what seems to be a kind of an uncomfortable exchange between the brothers. You see, Esau, he offers to guide Jacob on his journey. But Jacob says to Esau, look, the children are frail. And if I drive them hard, the flocks, they and the flocks will die. Jacob insists on moving slowly and then joining Esau, is what he says, in his country of Seir. The text tells us what we need to know, <clears throat> but not Why? Then in verse 15 through 17, Esau offers to then to leave some of his own men with Jacob to journey at his own pace. But then Jacob refuses that assistance. In the end, Esau departs. Jacob now instead goes to Sukkoth, east of the Jordan River, and he builds a house there. Now, I, I take it that his original intention of going to Esau in Seir was no longer necessary because Jacob had now reconciled with his brother his well-being going forward did not depend on Esau. He didn't need to be guided on his journey. Now it was time for him to claim the promise that the Lord had made. God, God had dealt graciously with Jacob and Jacob was expecting that God would continue to deal graciously with him. He didn't need human representation on his journey. So as a child of God, what is your testimony? Would you say God has dealt graciously with me? Would you say that? I hope you would. But I would say this. There's a great many professing 
Christians who want to speak of their salvation in terms that put the emphasis on their own journey of discovery. That emphasis. Well, I searched and I found. They want to put the emphasis on choosing their own path of righteousness over that path of evil. It just seemed to me to be the right way. We're just deciding Jesus is just all right with me for whatever reason. And having believed this way, they live their lives guided by the, the adage attributed to Ben Franklin, right? God helps those who help themselves. But really, what can we say? What can we say but God has dealt graciously with me. If we think rightly, if we think rightly why, why we're in God's family, I was lost, but he found me. I was blind, but he opened my eyes. I was dead, but he gave me life. I was hell bound, but he plucked me from certain destruction. And really, is there anything at all in our lives that we might take credit for? God does not help those who think they can help themselves. What we have to acknowledge is that God is the one who gives. We are the ones who are weak and poor and destitute because of our sin. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, not for the self-determined, not for the disciplined, not for the thinking, not for the achieving. He simply died for the ungodly. And even the Apostle Paul who recognized this, this strange ability that he had. I used to be offended when I would read Paul thinking, kind of arrogant. But listen, listen, here, here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I never had a problem with that, but I always had struggled with this. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's talking about the other apostles. And that always struck me. I worked harder than any of them. But then he says where this comes from. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Even as it regards your own growth as a disciple of Jesus or the effectiveness of your ministry, none of us can claim any credit at all. The Apostle Paul, in describing that, that having the, the, the entrusted, being entrusted with the stewardship of the ministries of Christ, really the, the teaching, the gospel message, being entrusted with that and being able to, to share it with others. This is what he says. He asks his readers to ponder this. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So child of God, acknowledge God's blessing. Don't Dare take any credit for anything, not your salvation, not your growth. 
Now, I know you're not saying these things out loud, but I'm saying this to you, brothers and sisters, because I am faced with the same temptation. Things that I would never say out loud go running through my mind. So I'm going to say this to you. Check your thoughts. Don't boast in your heart about your impeccable parenting and how great your kids are. Don't boast in your heart about your careful stewardship of what the Lord has entrusted to you as you watch others squander. Don't boast. Don't boast about your unique ability to lead in the church. Don't boast about your great generosity in giving. Again, these things happen in our hearts and in our minds, right? We look around and we say, I'm better. Don't boast in your business prowess. Don't boast in anything. Like I said, I know you're not saying these things out loud, but I'm saying this because I'm tempted with these same stupid, ugly, evil thoughts. What did you, what do you have that you did not receive? And why do you boast as, you, as if you did not receive them? I was thinking about this. There are really two types of people in the world. Two types. But there's lots of types. But for my purposes, there are two types. And, and which you are, which you are really de- before the face of God. Which you are determines everything about where you will be in eternity. And here are the two types. There are entitled people and there are grateful people. And entitled people think God owes them for their own contribution to the kingdom. Jesus spoke of them, gave this illustration. He told of what happens at the end of time. People will come before him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Look at my resume, Lord. Look how well I've done for you. Jesus explained what he will say to them at the judgment. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But what does he say to the grateful? The one who says, everything I have is because you've dealt graciously with me. Everything that I've done in my life is because you have given it to me. Every blessing I've enjoyed has come from your good hand. Everything I understand to be true about your word is because your spirit opened my eyes. The reason I'm even saved is because you took me from death and gave me life. I have nothing and everything I have is because you have given it to me. And to those grateful people who acknowledge that God has done everything, Jesus will say, enter into the joy of your master. So which are you? On my last heading, promise fulfilled. <clears throat> As I've uh, read through the Bible many times, I just see this recurring theme, and perhaps you see this as well. There's just simply the, the failure of man, right? We see that a lot in the scripture. The failure of man, but then the promises of God to rescue him. God rescues man from the peril that he creates for himself by his sin. I challenge you to do this, and I, I did this myself. In your Bible search app, look up the phrase, in quotes, I will. And look at it each time it's attributed to the voice of God. Okay, so God says, I will. It, it's overwhelming how many times God says, I will. 
God makes promises. And when God makes promises, he fulfills those promises in his own time. So God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to Abraham that his innumerable, innumerable offspring would ultimately occupy the land of Canaan as their own possession, as their own land and recognized as their own land. That, was, that would have to wait where we are in the text. That would have to wait more than 400 years. But God's near-term promise to Jacob to return to the land as a sojourner after leaving Paddan Aram, that was about to pass. I'll remind you what it says back in chapter 28. Jacob heard from the Lord in a dream. He heard this. The Lord told him, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. It's 20 years earlier. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, admittedly, and I, I, I put my, try to put myself in Jacob's shoes, sandals. Before he saw Esau, I think his own safety and that of his family was still a question mark in his mind. And, but as we've seen, the Lord indeed protected Jacob and he blessed him and he caused Esau to see him favorably. And so verse 18 simply summarizes what has happened. Verse 18 of our text, chapter 33, 18. And Jacob came safely to the land of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. Now, what's the significance of this? I think Jacob sees the significance of this, and I want you to see it as well. This place, Shechem, this is the place where Abraham first heard the promise. Back in chapter 12, 6 and 7, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Jacob's now home. And being home, the home that the Lord told him he'd have, he bought a parcel of land, really hearkening back to the original promise made to Abram, Abraham. Now, his own proximity to the Shechemites would, would cause a problem. Not too long. We'll see that in the next chapter. But generations later, as the Israelites were hearing this story, as they're about to possess this very land as their own possession, they'd be reminded that this was the fulfillment of the Lord's promise. God had indeed fulfilled his promise. And what was, his, what was Jacob's response here now? Like his grandfather Abraham, he worshipped. Verse 20, there in Shechem, he erected an altar and called it El, Elohi, Israel. Brothers and sisters, the response, the right response to God's promise fulfilled is worship. As a child of God today, you should, and I exhort you, engage in worshiping God because God has kept his promise. God's promise to the Israelites after rescuing them from bondage in, in Egypt is the same promise to us in a fuller sense who have been rescued from bondage to sin and death. And that rescue is secured by Christ himself. 
the Lord told the Israelites, and we can take this to heart, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And we can say that, brothers and sisters, because God has fulfilled his promise in Christ. We know we are the people of God. And while the Israelites did not have the heart to endure in faith, and we see that again, man stumbling in the face of God's promises, God rescuing again. They didn't have the heart to endure in faith. We do. Because God has fulfilled another promise, that promise to intervene spiritually and supernaturally in our lives. He made this promise through the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I'll read it from Ezekiel. The Lord says, and I will give you a new heart. There's that I will statement. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And if you're in Christ today, if you've seen Christ crucified for your sin at the cross, that's been opened up to you. That reality, because there's millions of people in the world who look at that and think, well, what a silly story. But if you're in Christ today, you've seen what has been accomplished there at the cross. Why? Because God took out your heart of stone and he gave you that heart of flesh. And what should you do in response to the fact that God has fulfilled this promise? I think some I wills towards God are probably appropriate. They're certainly warranted. So we take the psalmist's example. We take heed of this where the psalmist says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, and that's by faith. So that includes you. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, by faith. The writer of Hebrews says this. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. God has indeed fulfilled his promise. And brothers and sisters, I think one of the best things that we can do, one of the best things that we can do, in fact, the only thing that we should do as we think about how we live our lives, we live our lives as an expression of, of worship to the Lord. When we gather, yes, and we should gather and declare praises together in this room. But as we spill out from here, we live our lives of worship as laying our lives down as living sacrifices, as a holy and acceptable worship to God, seeking to do all that we do for the glory of God, whether that's instructing your children or putting food on the table or working the job you have or interacting with a neighbor or a complete stranger. We live for worship. Well, Jacob's anticipated reunion with his brother Esau ended up being a joyful, joyful resolution. And for the people of God today, we get to join often for a family reunion, but that looks forward to a greater day when those who everywhere from every time have surrendered to Christ and looked to him in faith, we forever will recount the, the innumerable blessings of our God and we will worship and enjoy Christ forever. May God grant us continuing grace
to keep us faithful to that day. Let's pray. God, we are grateful. Grateful that you awaken us from our deadness, give light to our, in place of our dark blindness. Father, you have blessed us abundantly. And what can we say? You've dealt graciously with us. Help us be those people, Father, that routinely testify to your goodness as that is really our witness in the world. We cannot say we have done better. We cannot say we have achieved anything. All we can say is you have been merciful to us to call us to yourself. Keep that ever in our minds, God, so that our witness beyond these walls is as people who are grateful to you. So, Father, cause that sense of gratitude to grow more and more and more each day. And teach us to be those people who respond to you in worship, seeking to do all that we do for your own glory and that of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.